Morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Good. That's what I like to hear. I mean, it's okay if you say that you're not doing good. There's at least one of you, every time I ask you how you're doing, he tells me, I'm doing terrible. And then he just wants to know if I'm paying attention. Who here likes a good story? All right, most of you do. Most people do. That's why TV, movies, books, all of that are so popular. We all like a good story. And there's so many different kinds of stories. Um, how many of you like historical fiction? All right. How many of you like sci-fi? How many of you like fantasy? How many of you like comedy? How many of you like pretty much everything? Okay, some of you. How many of you like drama? And I'm not talking about like a dramatic story. I'm just talking about like drama queen drama. Oh, nobody, which is really weird because reality TV is so popular, I would have thought there'd be more of you. See, that's something that I just cannot get into is reality TV. I just can't do it. Now, some people, they live and breathe by it. And I'm not going to judge out loud. Um, I, just, I just can't. And you hear people talk about it everywhere. You know, in the break room, the office, the church snack foyer, you just hear people talking about what happens in reality TV. You know, and it's always something inane. You know, you hear people talking about, oh, did you see what Dylan did last night? He got drunk and punched a donkey and got kicked. And then there's like, you know, the other girl who'd been watching it with them, like, oh, it's not his fault. It was at Kirstie's fault because she got caught with a Jaden and he's really upset and it's not his fault. I'm just like, who cares? Why is this even important? And I, I'll hear about some of the things that went on in reality TV, and I don't even know how to respond. I just, what? That's all that can come out of me is the word what. I don't even know what to do with it. Why would someone do that? Why would someone say that? And maybe more importantly, why would someone want to be seen that way? Why would someone want that story told about them? Or maybe even more importantly, why would they tell that story about themselves? Why do we tell the stories about ourselves? It's easy to poke fun at somebody else's stories, but what about our own? Why do we say the stories about ourselves that we have? Why do we choose them? Or did we choose them at all, or were they chosen for us? I listen to stories for a living now. I'm a hospital chaplain. Every day, I go into a room and somebody tells me their story. Sometimes it's a happy story. Sometimes it's a sad story. Sometimes it's a tragic story. Sometimes it's about love. Sometimes it's about loss. Sometimes it's about pain. But one story that always pops up is value. Why them? What have they done to deserve what has happened to them? They all have a story. So I'm going to tell you about one of those stories. I went into a uh, room to visit with this couple. Um, the husband was the patient. And don't worry, I'm not going to violate HIPAA, so please don't report me. I don't want to lose my job, especially since we're recording this. It's not good. 
And so I, I had actually gone in the day before to visit him, and the man was 54 years old, and he had a heart attack, his fifth one. And he was in bed, I came in, I said hi, and he's like, you know, I'm really not feeling up to a visit today, but could you come back tomorrow? And that seemed reasonable, as he'd had a massive heart attack, I probably wouldn't want to talk to anybody either. I came back the next day, he's laying in bed, and he's very cheerful, and he's very excited to have me come in. He's like, chaplain, please come in. It's weird when people call me chaplain, I'm not used to that yet. He says, come in, chaplain. He's like, I want to talk to you. And I was like, all right, let's, let's hear it. Now, I try to review charts before I go into the room. I like to have an idea of what I'm walking into because you just never know what you're going to walk into. You think it's going to be about one thing, and it turns out to be about something else. And so I go in knowing that him and his wife are Pentecostal. Okay? All right, I have a little bit of idea of their background. They're Christian. I kind of have an idea of their theology. Um, we'll find out how devout they are, and it doesn't, really isn't the important part. I just want to hear what they have to say. So he starts talking, and he's telling me about his life and why he's there. And while he's talking, his wife is preoccupied with the fact that I'm a pastor and a chaplain. And so she keeps trying to talk to me and tell me about her church. I'm trying to listen to him, and she keeps talking over the top of him. And she's really excited about this because she wants me to see how awesome her church is. So she pulls out her phone and starts YouTubing videos about her church. And then she starts playing them at full volume and then shoving them in my face. And when I say shoving them in my face, I mean up until the point where they touch my nose, shoving them in my face. I'm trying to listen to this man in the bed, and she's walking up going, look at our church. And the volume is full blast. I can't hear this man. I can barely hear her. I'm trying to listen, but I'm trying not to ignore her. It was all very distracting. And so I'm trying to pay attention. It's like, oh, yes, that's, that's great. That's, that's really a beautiful church that you have. That's great music that you have. So she'd take it, prop it up against a water bottle, and then leave the volume on while he's trying to talk, and then would randomly interject something about what was happening in the video. And then she would switch the video and said, oh, this one has a better view of everything. And sure enough, it did. You could see the stage where the choir was up here, and they were rocking and rolling. The choir's going. And then the bishop is up there. He's got one hand in the air, and he's like dancing in place. And they're all praising Jesus. The band is over here. The guitarist thinks he's somewhere between, um, you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Eddie Van Halen as they are praising Jesus. I mean, they are just having at it. And you pan over to the congregation, and they're jumping up and down. They're, you know, raising their, I mean, they were just having a blast, and she wanted me to see all this. Problem is, I'm trying to listen to him as he's trying to tell me his story, and she wants me to see the church. It was absolute chaos. Not how I felt a visit probably needed to go. So finally, I got to this place where I was like, all right, I think these people might appreciate prayer. So how about if I offer to pray with them? So I did. And they thought that was the most fantastic thing that had been said the entire time, which I was grateful for. So I try to pray with them. And I'm thinking, this is going to be fine, because once I start praying, they're going to calm down, they're going to be quiet, and I'll be able to say things, it'll be in control, it'll be orderly, and it'll be fine. He's shaking his head because he already knows. I forgot they were Pentecostal. In all of that mix, I forgot their background. And the moment I started praying, he started praying, and she started praying. Out loud, separately, different prayers at the top of their lungs. I can't hear myself talk. To this day, I have no idea what I prayed. I don't have a clue. 
And we're just praying, and I'm praying, and he's praying, and she's praying, and he's praying about everyone he's ever met. She's praying about my wife. She's never met her. Her, you know, the nurse in the hallway, the CNA that came in the day before, some random person who lives in Tokyo. I have no idea who these people were. I finally get to a place where I'm starting to wrap up because I just don't even know what I'm saying anymore. A nurse comes in with the push cart to do vitals and check meds, and he comes in and he starts talking. He's like, all right, I want to check. And you know, I'll just, I'm going to, and then he just walks off. He had no idea what to do in that situation. And I see this happen out of the corner of my eye, and I'm trying not to laugh because we're praying, right? This is important. So I stop praying. They continue to pray. He prays for another three or four minutes. He stops. She prays for another five. And then she stops, and I don't even know what to do anymore. I'm just like, well, amen. Um, I will check on you another time. I get up and walk out of the room. And in my head, all I'm thinking is, what just happened? I have no idea what just happened. And I'm sort of excited and not excited at the same time because I'm kind of looking forward to going back to my, my, my chaplain colleagues and telling them about you know, how the... Uh, how the awkward, unsuspecting Adventist boy found himself out of his element in neck deep in Pentecostals, and how that went. And it was just really this weird, surreal experience. Now, some of you may be thinking, he's getting a little judgy about them Pentecostals. And I want you to remember something. Today we are talking about hope. And we can't talk about hope without talking about the stories we tell ourselves especially when those stories aren't really true stories. We'll come back to the Pentecostal visit later. Let's talk about a different story, a Jesus story. We like Jesus stories? Listen, I heard like three of you. You better all like Jesus stories. If you don't, you are in the wrong place. This is a Jesus church. Do you like Jesus stories? Amen, thank you. I told you this is recorded, come on. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. If you use a pew Bible, that's page 984. John chapter 4. And in this story, Jesus has been preaching, there's been baptisms, he's about to leave Judea and go back to Galilee. On his way there, he has to pass through Samaria. And while he's in Samaria, he finds himself sitting next to a well. Presumably because he's thirsty. And so we pick up the story here on verse 6. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now, I don't know if that means he would have just asked his disciples to draw him water instead of just doing it himself. I don't know. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come and draw from this well again. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. So what you've said is true. Now the story continues, but I want to stop here and highlight some things, because this is the important part for today's illustration. In this story, you have the interaction between a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man. And there's some things about this that are important to point out. One, Jews did not have dealings with Samaritans. The Samaritan woman said it in verse 9. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Jews had a tendency to believe that they were above Samaritans, and they had a tendency to let them know about it. They wanted Samaritans to know that they were not as good, that they were less than. That is the story that they told about Samaritans. Two, this particular Samaritan woman's history was problematic, as illustrated in verses 18, I'm sorry, 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right in saying that. You've actually had five husbands and the guy you're with isn't one of them. Now, she had five husbands, living with a guy out of wedlock. This was definitely a no-no in their culture, especially that last one. And here's the thing, what happened to the other five? Did they all die? I mean, it could have happened. It's unlikely which means that she's at least been divorced a few times, which is also sort of a no-no. It doesn't make her look good because either A, she's cursed and evil and everyone who's with her dies, or B, she's unfit to be a wife and no one wants to have her. Either way, it doesn't look good for her. She is something less than even within her own people. And what I wonder is, what must people have said to her about her back, behind her back? What did they say to her face? What did she believe about herself, about her worth? Was she with this man, this not a husband, because she had no better options? Because no one else would take her? Did she have any place at all? Now it's true that any other Jewish man besides Jesus probably wouldn't have known all this background history about her. But it was Jesus, and he did know. And because it's Jesus, he tells her about her sordid past and then proceeds to offer her eternal life, right? Is that how that went? That is not how that went. Because the order of events is important here. What you'll notice is that he offered her eternal life before he revealed that he knew about her background that he knew anything about her. And because we know Jesus did know, we realize that it wasn't important for the offer that he was making. He didn't care what her background was. Here's something that I want to offer you. He reveals that he does know everything about her and he does not rescind the offer. And the message is very clear. I want you to be with me. Your dark secrets don't matter to me because they were never a secret from me. 
How many of you think you're hiding secrets from God? How many of you didn't raise your hand because you know it would be stupid to? I've always known who you are, and I've never once not wanted you. That's a pretty good message, right? You were never this terrible thing people have made you out to be that you have made you out to be. You are better than the story you've believed about yourself. There is hope for you. How many of you would like to hear that story from Jesus about you? And the question I want to pose for you is, why are we so willing to believe the worst things about ourselves? Why are we willing to believe terrible things about ourselves? Why do we struggle so much with hope? A couple weeks ago, Pastor David preached a sermon about shame. And it bothered me a little. Not because it was a bad sermon. In fact, it was a great sermon. It bothered me because I had already started writing my sermon for this week, and turns out we were writing the same sermon. And after I was into it, I haven't quite finished it yet, and I'm on shift at the hospital the day that David preached it. And I'm just coming out of this really emotionally difficult visit. I'm not really thinking because I'm trying to process everything that's happened, and I get that double buzz in my pocket that says, I've just received a text in my pants. So without thinking, I pull out my phone. We're really not supposed to do that unless we're back in the office because we want to be available all the time. You could be walking around, somebody wants to talk. If you're on your phone, they're not going to do that. Instead, I'm looking down and I see a text from Japheth and it says, so, David just spent the shame sermon. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm actually talking out loud to my phone walking in the hallway at the hospital. Are you kidding me? I am halfway done with that, what? Everybody must have thought I was mad. Because I was like, I had this, what is going on here? So, upon reflection, Japheth and I talked a little bit, and we realized this is not necessarily a bad thing. Because you can't talk about hope without talking about the stories that we tell ourselves. We thought maybe hope is a better direction to go. Because if we can expose the lies about ourselves, then we can recognize that maybe there is some hope for us. And in between this, we had Easter, the story of Jesus on the cross, proving that his love for us is greater than the shame that we feel for ourselves. That proving that that shame is not even real. And as David pointed out, shame is about our self-view. And we get the concepts of guilt and shame all mixed up. Because guilt says, I have done a bad thing. And sometimes we have. I did something bad. But shame says, I am something bad. And that's just simply not true. I cannot be loved because I am something unworthy. And to that, Jesus declared to the love of his death, no, you are not. Because nothing that God loves is unworthy. Do you hear that? What God loves has value. What has value has worth. And what has worth is worthy, and God loves you. How can you be unworthy? 
You may not be perfect, but you're worthy, and shame has no power over you. You have hope. And this was true from the beginning in the garden, but it isn't always what we taught ourselves. Turn to Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. It's page 3 in your pew Bibles. You don't have to count very high. You can find it. It's right there. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And I know that David touched on this, but I'm going to bring out something a little bit different here. See, we need to see that everything was right in their world. They were filled and surrounded with love, and more importantly, they believed it. They had nothing but hope and certainty. But then they went and they made a bad choice. Some may say that's an understatement. But they made a bad choice. And as we go into chapter 3, into verse 7, after they've discovered that things have changed, this happens. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, suddenly, now they're full of doubt. God shows up and they hide because they're afraid. They may even believe that they are some shameful thing, that they are something bad. And they hide because they have lost their hope. They're no longer certain that God will still love them. Why would you hide? If you, didn't, if you believed in the love, why would you hide? See, that's not the problem for us. The problem for us is that we also believed it. And then we taught it to everybody else. The text does not actually say that they were filled with shame. It says they were afraid. It implies it but it doesn't say it. But even if they did believe it, we can know that this was not actually true from the, God's perspective for many of the same reasons as the Samaritan woman's story. And we have a habit of talking about the plan of salvation as though it were plan B. As though Adam and Eve made a bad choice and suddenly God was surprised. Oh, well, that happened. How are we going to fix this? Except the Bible tells us that's not actually how that happens. There was no plan B. There was no plan A. There was simply the plan. And the Bible calls it this, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Have we really thought about what that means? What is the foundation of something? What's the foundation of something? It is the thing upon which everything else is built. Before creation took place, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. God got together with all the other heavenly peeps and said, here's the plan. And it wasn't until they had it worked out that he said his next words, let there be light. And the implications of this are important. Because it tells us that it was never going to be any other way. This is the way that it was going to be. God came up with a plan and he agreed upon it. 
Adam and Eve were loved before their sin. God knowing that they would make a bad choice, and then he continued to love them. He loved them before it all, and creating a plan of love and death that would give hope to them and everyone who lived afterward. And because there are some Bible translations that use the word shame in that story instead of afraid, in reference to Adam and Eve when they hid, and because of how others have chosen to interpret that, we have taught that they became something bad, that they were filled with a shame, and that they were now unworthy in God's sight and without hope. But we know that that's not true. But because of these things, we live lives devoid of hope, always believing we are not good enough and that we can never be. And that was never the point. And it shouldn't be. Because if life has no value, and then we treat it as such, whether it's someone else's or our own, then what does life mean? There was a um, 25-year-old girl who came in. Um, She was a fourth grade school teacher. I went in to visit with her because she had attempted suicide. And suicide is not something that always makes sense to the rest of us who never think that way. And I talked to her and it became very clear that she didn't understand it either. She believed that she does nothing but let people down, that she is unworthy. Those were her words. Even though she was highly respected by the principal that she worked for, absolutely adored by her kids and their parents, she had a stack of cards there from the kids that they all handmade. And we know that teachers come together and say, okay, write a card for them. But the things that the kids wrote on the cards, we miss you so much because you're so pretty. We miss you. We want you to come back. We love you so much. We really want you to come back because you are so much better than the substitute that they brought in. They're terrible and you're awesome. Please come back soon. And there was just a stack of them. And she didn't believe a single one. She was the junior varsity girls basketball coach. And she was respected by her students by her players, and by the coach of the varsity team. She had everything going for her well. She was successful. She was beautiful. She had friends, and she didn't believe any of it. She didn't even tell her principal why she was in the hospital. She just called in and said, hey, I'm going to be out for a couple days. I'm not feeling good. I talked with her, and as we talked a little bit, and I started to learn more about her story, um, I'm not a therapist, and I suggested, you know, when you, when you leave, it'd probably be a good idea for you to follow up with somebody, because she really liked the fact that we were talking, and I figured, well, if she likes to talk, she should talk to somebody who could actually help her, and she said, oh, I've already got a therapist, I've been seeing one for a few months now, and I said, that's good, and I asked her, I said, is it all right if I find out, what did your therapist tell you about this? You know what she said? I haven't told my therapist. How come? I'm afraid. I'm afraid. 
afraid she'll think that I've let her down. What are the stories we tell about ourselves? Instead of running to the one person who was most able to help her in her hopelessness and pain, she went and hid in the garden because she was naked. Just like the rest of us. I want to finish that story about the uh, Pentecostal couple. Because what I told you was factual in its details, but the execution of relaying those details was a bit interpretive. I may have left a couple details out. And here are some of those details. The man who was laying there in the hospital bed after his fifth heart attack, who was so excited about his church and they couldn't stop talking about it, who was praying in a cacophony that felt like chaos to me, was a man who had moved to Colorado from Connecticut before he had met his wife, who he met here in Colorado. And while he was out there, he was a man who had had a $400 a day cocaine habit. Now, I'm not up on the street value of cocaine, but that seems like a lot of cocaine. I mean, I don't know how much that is, but that's like, I'm sprinkling it on my food. I'm just doing cocaine all day long. Um, he was losing his job. His life was coming apart. He was losing all of his friends. And one day, one friend came to him and said, hey, why don't we get together this Sunday and get some lunch? We can get together. We can watch the football game. It'll be great. Um, I can come pick you up, but I'm going to go to church first. So let's do that. And the guy thought, I'm going to go with him because maybe I can get some money out of him. And so he goes to church, and he liked it so much that he went back the next week. And he realized something. He met Jesus and learned what love meant. He learned that he was more than the sum of his mistakes. He learned that his life mattered. When he talks to God, he does it without any shame. He pours out his soul and he does it with joy. He does it with hope. He believes his life matters and that his God believes it too. He believes that God believes it. So when he prays, he doesn't just pray for himself. He prays for every person he can think of because he wants to make sure that they believe it too. He knows deep in his soul, deep in the place where God lives in him, that he has hope. I want to read Romans chapter 8, 31 to 38 with you. It's 1046 in your pew Bible. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Guess who condemns you? No one. 
Matt, who condemns you? No one. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are more than the sum of your mistakes. You are worthy in the eyes of God, which means you should be worthy in yours. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been and what's been done for you, always, always, always know that you are loved. Always. Hope is yours.